This is Ashley Kelsch, and you're listening to Life Coaching for Modern Renegades, episode number 45. Welcome to Modern Renegades Podcast. This is a life coaching podcast for the person who wants to learn how to lose themselves in the moment, not life circumstances. Each week, we will explore mental and spiritual practices that will inspire you to ask, seek, and heal. They are for the modern renegade. They are for you. Hello, renegades. Not that anybody cares, but I'm just going to jump in and let you know that I have been recording this podcast today and trying to record and the sound wasn't playing back. And I was like, holy mother of God, just fucking work. It turns out I didn't turn on my microphone after like so much, you know, that's, that is the nature of, well, not only being me, but, you know, doing things, running businesses, being a creator. I don't know what it is, actually. I just know that that's what happened. And if I had hair, I'd pull it out. But I'm being very gentle with what little inch and a half I do have. So I took some deep breaths and I was like, oh, yeah, just turn on your microphone. That might do the trick. Good Lord. How is everybody? I'm recording, as you know, in my little spot, but this time the Frenchies are in here. There may be some snorts and snorting. You will love it, as I do. Today's episode is not about Frenchies, and it's not about troubleshooting. It's about this really interesting concept. Well, it's not a concept. I'm turning it into one called Hostile Architecture. Last year, I was turned on to a podcast called Criminal. I don't know if you've heard of this. And it is a podcast about people who have committed crime, have been accused of crime, or have been involved in crime somehow. But it's not one of those like scary podcasts, you know, which thankfully, because I'm not interested in that, the last thing I want to do is spend time thinking about serial killers that might still be out there. Not for me. Anyway, that's not this. Criminal is a very interesting podcast pretty short. And it's just all about different crimes. And the one that was first recommended to me called He's Still Neutral is about this couple in Oakland who were having some issues in their neighborhood. And it's like the city wouldn't get involved. They didn't want to call the police, the blah, blah, blah. So they took matters into their own hands and they put a Buddha out in a spot where they thought was problematic. And it's a fascinating story. It's so fascinating to hear what happens in this community when a Buddha is placed outside. And in this episode, because I don't want to ruin it for you, in this episode, there's another part of it where this guy's interviewed and he talks about hostile architecture, which is something I'd never heard of before. And as soon as I did, I couldn't help but notice it all around town. As a matter of fact, I believe last year at some point, on my Instagram stories, I was like, hey, isn't this little feature on this bench super cool how it looks like the stainless steel bar is going through it? And I was like, just so you know, here's why that's there. It's to help prevent skateboarders from doing anything on it or people perhaps sleeping there. Anyway, so hostile architecture is a top-down approach to design out crime. This is the actual definition if you hit that wiki. It's an urban design strategy that uses elements of the built environment to purposefully guide or restrict behavior in order to prevent crime and maintain order. It often targets people who use or rely on public space more than others, such as the youth and the homeless, by restricting the physical behaviors in which they can engage. 
The six main concepts, according to Moffat, are territoriality, surveillance, access control, image and maintenance, activity support, and target handling. Applying all these strategies is key when trying to prevent crime in any neighborhood, crime-ridden or not. Proponents of hostile architecture will tell you that it's necessary to maintain order and safety. The approach, though effective, is considered by some aggressive, and there is a lot of pushback when it comes to hostile architecture and the lack of inclusivity it offers. There are a lot of people who believe it discourages connection within the community, pushes people out by making them uncomfortable. When I think of architecture and design, I think of it bringing people together. It encourages us to sit, for example, on the benches and admire the trees in the park near a water fountain to enjoy our outdoor spaces in nature. And what I thought were cool design features or an artistic approach to a bench were entirely something else or built with something else in mind. Little did I know that these understated but coolly designed features, like, say, the benches I mentioned earlier that have the bars on the outside and then maybe one in the middle, you think these are for your arms to rest. But no, in all actuality, those are there to keep people off. Metal spikes outside of high-end couture fashion stores like those of Alexander McQueen seem like an aesthetic design feature, but the motivation has little to do with fashion and everything to do with keeping loiterers from sitting against the storefront. And this is all something I've been observing and thinking about, and it occurred to me one day that this top-down approach, hostile architecture, is how so many of us operate internally. We look fine from the outside. We talk about self-awareness and having healthy lifestyles. We post the memes and we wax philosophically about self-help. But on the inside, the way we think of ourselves and others and the way we approach our self-care and image is often from a foundation of hostility, defensiveness, and or restriction. We think if we're hard on ourselves, we will overcome this behavior or negative feeling. In an effort to keep up, we talk mean to ourselves When we've had a bad night, we place dependence on ourselves. We punish ourselves verbally, emotionally. We'll ground ourselves and hide away from friends and family, disconnecting from our people. We tell ourselves this is what we deserve, and we shame ourselves. If you think about this, hostile architecture isn't really that different than how we would operate from ego, which is a top-down system that is informing you to stay safe, look for trouble, judge your surroundings and self, and get everything in line with its thinking. It may want you to get advice from the outside, but only if it's going to agree with the input that supports whatever you already believe about yourself. And then your ego is going to take credit for all of it anyway. It sounds like this should work, but it never does. It's fear-driven and operating from scarcity. It definitely doesn't feel good when you're in the process. And honestly, if you don't know the cause of your problem, how are you going to solve for it? We set up walls of resistance and guards for avoidance because the feeling you are experiencing from the night out or not being happy right after breakup is uncomfortable, and you just want to bypass it altogether. So we lie to ourselves that this isn't what good normal people do, or we tell ourselves we're fine, everything is fine, when deep down we don't feel normal or fine. Do you see how subtle hostile architecture and top-down behavior is? Your ego has you believing it's the path of least resistance, but let's not forget what we resist persists. We live in a society that encourages this exact architecture. We think the worse it feels and the harder it is, the better. White knuckle your way through it. Tell yourself all the horrible things you've done so you don't do it again. I was thinking of my history of thinking as it relates to this because in the past, when I was most compelled to stick with a new diet or never drink again, 
It was because I'd gotten to a point of no return in my mind. The weight had become so much and I was terrified of gaining more or putting it back on if I lost it. And with the drinking, I had the mindset, if I do this, I could die. I was completely freaked out. This thought process even applied to my money making. I needed to practically be at zero on my bank account with rent due yesterday to get motivated, to make a change. I discovered a variety of beliefs like, I've had mornings in my past where I've woken up after drinking, riddled by anxiety and regretful thinking. I can't do this anymore. I need to stop. I want to get as many days between me and this quote-unquote bad night as possible. Get as far away from this feeling as possible. Or there won't be enough money. What will I do when I run out? The bills are due now and there isn't enough. I have to hustle as quickly as I can. In order for me to feel motivated to make this money, moderate or stop drinking or change my diet, things needed to feel horrible and rock bottom. What I discovered for myself was this belief that I have to hit rock bottom to change. Something has to go terribly wrong. Then I can make it better. I want to get as far away from that moment and myself as possible. I want to fast forward to 90 days out. Just be away from it. Changed and better. This was me avoiding the negative feelings that were coming up from the narrative that I had around myself and what it would be like to even feel into it. I was trying to hightail it out of there as if nothing had ever happened. I'd never been that person. But she's still here, just being ignored. When we slow down the thinking and separate the shame and judgment out of it, less of an attack approach, we can maybe assess it from a peaceful place, one where we try to understand our process of how we got there to begin with, a loving, compassionate place. This approach is such a cleaner way of processing our emotions as opposed to the hostile one where we muddy it and compound it with more negative feelings. We want to learn how to feel any emotion. And rather than setting up a fortress of protection, you press into these emotions. This shows you that you have your back, renegades. And the truth is, as horrible as the feelings may feel, we will survive them. Not only will you develop a deep relationship with yourself, but you will learn how to trust yourself from this place. You'll build a foundation of intimacy with yourself, and you will work from the inside out, the bottom up, rather than the top down. I want you to notice when you're in that thought loop. Just start to create awareness around it and step the fuck back. Can you notice how that thought makes you feel? How you show up? The result it gets you. Who would you be without the thought? Can you release it? You know what I discovered sitting in those thoughts and feelings was that they were familiar and habitual. That my thinking and feelings were from the past of what had happened and that I was just perpetuating the stated belief system. In the past, I did have to hustle and scrap to get by, but I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to be driven from fear. I was reading Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, and she said, Our fear is free-floating. We're afraid this isn't the right relationship, or we're afraid it is. We're afraid they won't like us, or we're afraid they will. We're afraid of failure, or we're afraid of success. We are afraid of dying young, or we are afraid of growing old. We're more afraid of life than we are of death. You'd think we'd have some compassion for ourselves, bound up in emotional chains the way we are, but we don't. We're just disgusted with ourselves because we think we should be better by now. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking other people don't have as much fear as we do, which only makes us more afraid. Maybe they know something we don't. Maybe we're missing a chromosome. It's become popular these days to blame practically everything on our parents. We figure it's because of them that our self-esteem is so low. 
If only then they'd been different, we'd be brimming with self-love. But if you take a close look at how your parents treated us, whatever abuse they gave us, often mild compared to the way we abuse ourselves today. It's true that your mother might have said repeatedly, you'll never be able to do that, dear. But now you say to yourself, you're a jerk. You never do it right. You blew it. I hate you. They might have been mean, but we're vicious. Our generation has slipped into a barely camouflaged vortex of self-loathing, and we're always, even desperately, seeking a way out, through growth or through escape. Maybe this degree will do it, or this job, this seminar, this therapist, this relationship, this diet, or this project. But too often the medicine falls short of a cure, and the chains just keep getting thicker and tighter. The same soap operas develop with different people in different cities, We begin to realize that we ourselves are somehow the problem, but we don't know what to do about it. We're not power enough to overrule ourselves. We sabotage, abort everything, our careers, our relationships, even our children. We drink, we do drugs, we control, we obsess, we codepend, we overeat, we hide, we attack. The form of dysfunction is irrelevant. We can find a lot of ways to express how much we hate ourselves. But express it we will. Emotional energy has got to go somewhere, and self-loathing is a powerful emotion. Turned inward, it becomes our personal hells, addiction, obsession, compulsion, depression, violent relationships, illness. Projected outward, it becomes our collective hells, violence, war, crime, oppression. But it's all the same thing. Hell has many mansions, too. Come on, Marianne. Damn, that's so good and relevant, renegades. Okay, in order for us to find the cause to our problems, we've got to get to the ground truth of where it sits. We want to work from the bottom up, from the inside out. Go in. You don't need any answers to get there. I want you to think of yourself like a network conduit. Your essential self is that copper, and you operate by sending the information throughout your entire personal environment. It's a slower process. It's calmer. It's more quiet. Actually, the more quiet you can get, the better. Your ego is going to have a lot to say about this. It's going to start sending out some commands, as I've said, top down. Just watch and observe them. You don't have to act on any of it. Remember, observe your reaction, choose your response. Belittling thoughts or negative self-talk won't actually get you the results you want. In spite of negative emotion, can you still take action, but from a place of patience, compassion, and understanding? I was talking to my son, Nick, recently today (laughs) about this topic. And he said, you know, this sounds like what I was doing last week after not going to the gym for a few days. I was at work and I kept thinking, you look small. You're weak. You've got to get back to the gym. I asked him how that felt. And he said it was terrible, which I think we all get and could agree. Yes, been there. I was like, Nick, why weren't you going to the gym? He said, mom, I've been so tired. I'm on my feet all day at work, and I don't want to go before because I have this thought, I don't want to wreck my legs since I'm going to be on my feet for the next six hours. And I asked him, well, how do you feel after you finish working out? The obvious, really good, better. And that's just it. I know I'll feel better if I go. I then asked him how else he could think about it. Like if there was another thought he could choose to think. And he replied with, I want to work out today because I know I'll feel better later mentally and physically. I said, how does that feel? And he said, yeah, that feels way better than talking down to myself, which didn't get me to the gym anyway. 
Renegades, we want to understand why we do or don't do the things, right? Rather than believe in the thoughts that you were thinking, ask yourself if that thought is even true. Am I smaller? How do I know? What does it mean about me if I am? Does thinking I'm smaller motivate me? What does thinking I'm smaller do for me? Who might I be without the thought, I look small? What does having smaller body mass even mean? And what am I making that mean about me? And then you can decide if you want to believe the thoughts and operate from there. I've had a long life habit of all or nothing with relationships, drinking, working, eating out. The minute things feel like, quote unquote, too much, I want to end it all and strip myself clean of any of it. And I've had what some might call a ton of success with this approach. I didn't eat dairy for well over a decade. I didn't drink for five plus years and have had many moments between then and now where I've stopped at a length of time. I'll work my ass off seven days a week and train for marathons and only run every day, all day. And then there's the burnout and I don't run for months. I think some of us find safety in the black and white thinking, I'm this and not that. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that approach, but I'm finding that learning to play in the gray to not swing so violently from one side to the other, reveals to me more information about why I choose what I do, how I got there to begin with. The other major life lesson I've learned from this was that for me, the things I was doing in excess or not at all weren't actually the problem. They were my solutions, but I blamed those external things and never did the required introspection to discover the source or cause of my pain. Again, I want to recommend that You do this work from the ground up as you approach your self-care, the bottom up. Learn to start watching your thoughts and being conscious to them. Remember, just because you're thinking them doesn't mean they're even true. You could have had the same thought every day for 20 years. Thank your brain and your ego for its opinion. Maybe even thank it for trying to keep you safe. And then take a deep breath and go in. If I wasn't in judgment, what would I think of this situation? If this wasn't a problem, What would I be thinking? Who would I be without this thought? Can I release this thought? What would I rather think? What haven't I learned about myself that is trying to reveal itself to me? I'm loving that question right now. Another one is, what is the coolest thing that I don't know about me yet? (laughs) Play with that, you guys. So listen, if there's one thing I've learned after 40 years, there's no way of getting away from you ever. You can't run, drink, or move yourself far enough to get away. You will always be there. And so my plan is to spend the next 40 years getting as close to me as possible and building a strong, supportive foundation to lean on, to grow from. What about you? How do you want to do that? Also, P.S., it has been proven that when communities work from the bottom up, be it against the crime or in the rebuilding of, they have a statistically higher success rate than those from the hostile architecture or top-down methods. And I'm going to say that what I'm suggesting today will also have a higher success rate. And also the serial killer movie I was talking about, it was called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And holy hell, it was very good a little scary. (laughs) I got a little teary-eyed for sure. I cried. And I really do recommend that one if you haven't seen it. I'm sure you guys already have because everybody seems to be on the game with TV series. Okay. Renegades, until next week, bottom up. Renegades, thank you for tuning in this week. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, let me know. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and share it with a five-star rating and review. You can also head on over to my website, www.modernrenegades.com to sign up for my newsletter, leave your questions and comments, or just connect with me directly. I look forward to hearing from you. 